pray with me. Father in heaven, you have never let us down during an Advent season. Uh, there's, there's something about what you are up to uh, during this season as we open the word of God and as we move relentlessly, steadily closer to Christmas morning uh, that you have a special gift to give this congregation. And so I pray for that gift this morning. I would not presume upon that gift. I ask that you would um, pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we open the Word of God and as we study our Bibles, help us to see what's really here in Scripture. As Paul says to Timothy, think over what I say. Think, think, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Help us to see how Luke chapter 20 can be appropriately leveraged for the Advent season. May we be so filled with a love of our Savior and a fresh experience of the gospel this morning that we leave this place ready to make a big racket for our King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to admit, until this past uh, Friday morning, I was feeling a bit skittish about preaching Luke chapter 20. And, and not because of the content that's, that's here, you understand. Um, preaching tough truths has never been something that I've avoided. If anything, it, it kind of interests me. I'm, I'm drawn to difficult texts. Um, not reluctant to preach Luke 22 because I don't grasp what's here in chapter 20. I think we can all readily grasp what's here. Uh, this passage, the series of passages in Luke 20 don't appear to be particularly impenetrable. Now, the reason I found myself somewhat hesitant to take up and herald these truths is that while I'm a lover of Scripture, I am also a lover of the liturgical calendar. It has something to do with my Episcopalian and Methodist upbringing. I am a sucker for Advent and for Lent every year, always have been. And so when at all possible, I like to see what we can do to preach a sermon series moving toward Christmas or moving toward, toward the Resurrection Sunday, taking up the themes of the season, whether from the incarnation to the crucifixion and the, the resurrection. In fact, I've been known to set aside whatever current sermon series we're working on just to focus squarely on those themes. If I don't see them in the passage at hand, we'll just set aside the preaching series and we'll address Advent on its own terms. But my favorite thing is when God's providence so shines on our consecutive exposition of the Bible that both the season and the Scripture match together. Now, as we set our sights on Luke chapter 20, I'll admit that the traditional themes of Advent appear to be altogether absent. I'm aware of that. Uh, what I mean is that if we're looking for shepherds and angels and mangers and swaddling clothes, we're going to be looking for a long time in vain. Luke chapter 20 is going to disappoint us every time. On the other hand, Advent is, is far, more, uh, far more about uh, other things than those cosmetic features of the story of the Incarnation, and, and we all know it. Um, Advent, maybe more importantly than anything else, is about being sent. Advent, perhaps more than anything else, is about living sent. Living sent lives into this world. Just as Jesus said to his first century disciples in John 20, 21, so he says to his 
21st century disciples here today. Even as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And we are sent with a message to this world, and this message is that there is news. There is good news for a suffering and sin-filled world. And that good news is that there is deep joy, there is forgiveness, there is actual reconciliation with God and with others, there is power, there is help, there is hope, and all of it is to be found in the crucified and risen King. And that crucified and risen King's name is Jesus. And lo and behold, what we find when we turn to Luke chapter 20 is that the entire chapter, all 47 verses, are one unrent cloth, one seamless garment that begin with these words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up. Okay, did you hear it? One day, as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. In other words, everything we're going to study from Luke chapter 20, verse 1, to Luke chapter 20, verse 47, unfolds in the context of Jesus' evangelistic ministry among the people and the leaders in Israel. Uh, in his, his excellent book entitled Learning Evangelism from Jesus, Jerem Bars writes this, It is my deep conviction that our evangelism, both in theory and practice, ought to be shaped by the teaching of Scripture and the examples that Scripture sets before us. As soon as we reflect on the subject of evangelism, it is evident that Jesus is the greatest evangelist. I agree. That, that might be obvious, but who wouldn't of us wouldn't agree with that assessment? Jesus is the greatest evangelist, and we have much to learn from him in this area. And so, over these next four weeks, we are launching a preaching series with the title Sent into Advent, a study of evangelism from Luke 20. And yes, thank you, Kara Kaler, for turning on a dime and providing this outstanding graphic artwork uh, Wednesday, or sorry, Friday afternoon, just about 48 hours ago. Thanks to Jolene for helping to prep it. Looks fantastic. Um, what initially appeared to me such a puzzle, how do you do Luke chapter 20 during Advent, is no longer that way. We're going to focus on evangelism the next four weeks because we pray for God to open gospel doors all year long. But during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. That's the big idea today. We pray for God, to, and I hope you do. I, pray, I hope that you pray for God to open gospel doors all year long. But it just so happens, I think that by His mercy, by the work of His Spirit, something happening in this season that He is about as we celebrate and focus on the incarnation and the coming of Christ, the doors are open wider during Advent than at other seasons. So three principles for, for mixing it up with folks on your list of five this Advent season. Three principles drawn from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, for mixing it up with folks on your list of five. Here's the first principle. Number one, expect unbelievers to question the authority of Christ. Expect unbelievers to question the authority of Christ. Would you follow along with me? I'll read chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 20, beginning of verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? 
Who is it that gave you this authority? Now, what we read here in Luke 20, verse 2, sets the tone for everything that's going to tumble out of this in, in chapter 20. And here's what we need to understand about this portion of Scripture. Luke chapter 20 is one long altercation between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. Or if you like, Luke chapter 20 is actually five interlocking altercations between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach summarizes this portion of Scripture well as he writes, Luke 20, 1 to 44, contains five controversies between Jesus and the chief priests, the scribes, and the Sadducees. First, the source of Jesus' authority. Second, Jesus' confrontational parable of the vineyard. Third, the dispute over Caesar's tax. Fourth, the Sadducees' trick question about the resurrection. And fifth, Jesus' question about the interpretation of Psalm 110, verse 1. And Bach observes, here is theological warfare in its most dramatic form. The leadership tries to catch Jesus in error, so they test him in every sphere, personal, political, theological. And I'd like to encourage you to explore the rest of this chapter, perhaps at some point this week, and just establish this for yourselves. I want you to see this for yourself, that Luke chapter 20 is about gospel preaching to unbelievers. Luke chapter 20 is about evangelism with unbelievers. And Luke chapter 20 is about controversy from front to back. And the first controversy that we're going to tackle this morning is all about the authority of Jesus. Once again, we read in verse 2 that the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders said to Jesus, tell us by what authority do you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, notice that the men here tip their hand the moment they open their mouths to Jesus. Jesus has been working miracles for three years in Israel. Jesus has been teaching with unparalleled power for three years in Israel. And Jesus has been gathering a massive following around him for three years in Israel. And up to this point, he's been greeted with sentiments like, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Or, blessed is the womb that bore you. Or, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's used to those kinds of greetings. And yet here, among the leaders of Israel, nonetheless, we have nothing but skepticism, cynicism, and outright unbelief. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, they were looking for a pretext, not for faith. They wanted something by which to catch him, not something by which to be liberated. That's exactly right. They're not looking to trust Jesus here. They're looking to trap him. Now, Jesus sees what they're doing a mile away. He won't let him be put, himself be put in this position. This will become very clear when we get to verses 3 and 4. But for now, we just need to recognize what the unbelief of the Jewish leaders is leading them to do. It's leading them to attempt to put Jesus into a double-bind situation. Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's protege, points out here that if Jesus says his authority comes from God, they will accuse him of blasphemy. You can count on it. But if Jesus says he comes on his own authority, they will accuse him of sedition. Either way, he's trapped. Their request is not an honest inquiry. It's a blatant ambush of the Savior. 
So what's the takeaway for us in our evangelism this Advent season? The takeaway is real simple. Expect, anticipate unbelievers to question the authority of Christ. You know that ornery uncle that you see only once a year around this season who's more than happy to mock your faith at the drop of a hat? Or your sister-in-law who goes to her own church but she's leery of becoming one of those heavy-duty Christians, as she calls them? Um, you know, we probably all have dear friends or neighbors or colleagues like this who've drunk the cultural Kool-Aid about Jesus being a great moral teacher, but they, they don't accept his claim to be God with skin on or to be the only way to God. Or, or how many times have you heard this? Well, well, I know the Bible says that, but I tend to think, or I know the Bible says that, but it's been my experience that I know the Bible says that, but my tradition has always, right? Reason, experience, tradition, and the minds of unbelievers always rise up to challenge the authority of Christ speaking in the Scriptures. It's as old as this passage. 1 Corinthians 1.18 reminds us that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 2.14 assures us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. So let's not be shocked when we're spending time with relatives or friends or colleagues or neighbors that are acting this way and operating this way. When they appeal to their reason or their experience or their collective tradition, let's anticipate it. Let's be prepared must be willing to engage them on their own terms with the questions that they actually have. This is what Jesus is going to do. So the first point is simply to affirm that we cannot assume the folks on our list of five are going to regard Jesus or the Bible as trustworthy, much less as, as life-transforming. First principle for, for mixing it up with folks on your list of five this Advent season, expect unbelievers. Take it to the bank. Expect them to question the authority of Christ. Second point today expose unbelievers to the matchless wisdom of Christ. I love this. Expose unbelievers to the matchless wisdom of Christ. Now this is counterintuitive, isn't it? If the people on my list of five don't regard Jesus or the Bible as authoritative, then shouldn't I stop using the Bible in my conversations with them? And my answer is, not if you don't want them to come to Christ. We worked on it all last week. Romans 10, 17. Ruthie had it for us. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ. That's where faith comes from. It comes from hearing and trusting the promises of God in Scripture, especially the promises about Christ, about the gospel. The word of Christ is powerful, friends. It, it can take care of itself. It reminds me of uh, something that Charles Spurgeon is said to have said. He said, defend the Bible? I'd sooner defend a lion. You don't defend the Bible. You let it out of its cage. and You let it roar. So as we continue the contours of this story, we're going to hear Jesus speak up. Jesus is not back on his heels. Jesus is going to roar, and he's going to do so by asking a question. Notice he answers a question with a question. 
Now, truth in advertising, rabbis did this all the time in the first century. This is standard fare among rabbinical practices, but Jesus did it best, answering questions with questions. And we can do this too. Jesus is light years ahead of these guys in this conversation. They say to him in verse 2, tell us, by what authority do you do, do, you do, do these things? Or, or who is it that gave you this authority? Jesus answers them in verses 3 and 4. I also will ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Notice he said a question. A question. That's all he needs. One question. He asked them about their position on John the Baptist, which is brilliant, by the way, and they know it. Because John the Baptist was a controversial figure. All that he had done was still very fresh in the minds of the Jews of this day. The crowds loved John. And the Jewish leaders, by and large, loathed him. They had their concerns about him, mainly because he gave no quarter to them in his preaching to them. Remember, he called them vipers on their way to hell. He, he suggested that they weren't saved. He said they weren't true children of Abraham. And so Jesus wants to know their view of John's baptism. And then Jesus' strategy here is worth considering too. One commentator I read said it this way, it's a multiple choice question, but he gives them only two options. So he's going to keep them in the driver's seat either way, or he's going to keep himself in the driver's seat either way. Furthermore, it's a question that demands honesty. With one single question, Jesus is going to force these guys to do something that they do not want to do, and that would be this, to tell the truth. Now, just a sidebar here. Do you like to ask people questions? I hope that you do. I'm serious. Do you enjoy asking people questions? getting to know them, drawing them out, seeing what makes them tick. If your honest answer is no, people just aren't that interesting to me, or I don't know, I haven't thought about it very much, I'll tell you something else about yourself that you probably already know, and that would be that you struggle with evangelism. Do you realize how often Jesus asks people questions? He loves asking people questions. Buckle your seatbelt. Do you realize how many questions Jesus asks in the four Gospels? It's been tallied. 307. Jesus asks 307 questions of people over the course of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Because he doesn't know the answers? I doubt it. Jesus asks people questions because it's one of the quickest ways for folks to help understand what's going on inside their own heart. Answering questions can be, can be as illuminating for the one answering the question as it can be for the one receiving the answer, especially if you know how to ask a good question. And Jesus is a master. Can any one of you, by worrying, at a single moment to his lifespan, is life not more than food, the body more than clothing? Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Where is your faith? Do you want to be well? Simon, son of John, 
do you love me more than these? Do you see this woman? Do you think that I've come to establish peace on the earth? What do you want me to do for you? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Over and over and over, Jesus asks people questions. Here's a tip. You don't have to go into the holidays with every answer. Just go into the holidays with a truckload of questions. You'll find your way into this conversation. If you want to be used of God, and if I want to be used of God to lead people to Jesus, then we should do this. Some of my favorite questions in the midst of conversation with unbelievers are some of the more unspectacular questions. Questions like, why? Really? How come? What do you mean by that? Why'd you just say that? Where did you first hear that, I'm wondering? Or, would you want to know if you're wrong? Now, you have to know them really well. You have to have some good rapport to ask that last question. But would you want to know if you're wrong? And if they tell you no, just say, all right, no problem. Usually that doesn't stick, though. They want to know. Now, we want to get back to our text in verse 5, but please don't underestimate the, po the power of questions in evangelism. In fact, Randy Newman, uh, the Christian author, not the American composer, uh, wrote an outstanding book on this topic called Questioning Evangelism. We have it downstairs. We have one copy on our shelf in the library downstairs. Go get it. It is fantastic. Or get it from, from Amazon this week. Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. It's an outstanding resource on this exact topic, using questions in evangelism. It might just be the spiritual B12 shot that you need to get through Advent sent this Christmas season. Now, Jesus' question is so good, they're stuck. We read in verses 5 to 7 that they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? If we say from man, all the people will stone us to death because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Now notice that the truth is not what they're debating here. They, they have no interest in giving, bearing an honest testimony. The truth is not what they're debating here. What they're debating here is expediency. What would be the more expedient reply? Daryl Bach notes that they do not even consider an honest reply, but only one that will play to the opinion of the people. That's right. That, that's all they're doing here. This is not about what's right. This is about what will work. They know what they think about John the Baptist, and they are too cowardly to make it known in public. Okay, have we made the point of this point? We pray for God to open gospel doors all year long, but during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. So three principles for mixing it up with unbelievers on your list of five this Advent season. Number one, expect unbelievers to, to challenge, to question the authority of Christ. But number two, expose unbelievers to the matchless wisdom of Christ. Use God's word. Let the lion out of the cage this Advent and see what he does. Use God's word in the context of your conversations with unbelievers all over your life this week. One final point today. Third principle for mixing it up with folks on your list of five. Not only ask questions of unbelievers, but exhort unbelievers in view of the coming judgment of Christ. 
exhort unbelievers in view of the coming judgment of Christ. I'm not sure that this third truth emerges real obviously from verses 7 and 8. I pondered this for a long time, how to phrase this exact point, but I'm, I'm willing for this to be right doctrine, wrong text. But I think it's here. Now let's take a look. Think about where we've been so far. The unbelieving Jewish leaders approach Jesus and they want him to weigh in publicly on the source of his authority with which he teaches. That's verses 1 and 2. In an effort to avoid the trap that they set, he skirts that and avoids uh, the trap by setting a trap of his own, by asking them a question about John the Baptist in verses 3 and 4. And then in 5 and 6, they, they huddle up and they review their options. If we say John's baptism is from God, we're going to look like hypocrites. If we say John's baptism is from man, we're going to be pummeled to death by the people. So they do the expedient thing in verse 7. They lie to Jesus, which is not a good idea, by the way. They lie to the Savior. That's their final answer. One commentator says, though instead they respond with a bureaucratic no comment. No comment. They opt out. They profess ignorance and agnosticism. You can hear Jesus' disapproval in the way that he responds to them, can't you? And his disapproval functions as a judgment that just hangs over them. Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So is there a lesson here for us in our evangelism this Advent? I think there's a couple. Um, the first is the lesson from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. We ought to do the opposite of what the Jewish leaders are doing here. Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with god's word but by the open statement of the truth i love it the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god here's the lesson if we not if we will not be the sort of people who say what we mean and speak openly and clearly and stand on the truth no matter how costly, Jesus is done talking with us. You see that here? Fellowship with Jesus is on the line when you're cagey about your language around lost people. This is a bone-chilling ending to this conversation. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's not going to cast his pearls before swine. We always wonder, where does that happen? You know, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, don't cast your pearls before swine, right here. Right here, he's got pearls of wisdom. He's not going to offer them at all to these, these individuals because they're swine. They're going to trample the pearls under his feet. So he's going to end the conversation. And you'll notice he turns away from them to address the people in verse 9 that he'd been initially preaching to in verse 1. And in the parable, he tells the people about a coming judgment on the Jewish leaders. So this is about judgment. It's the, coming up next week. It's the, wicked, the parable of the wicked tenants. And here's the final thing I want to say, and then we'll wrap up in verse 8. Jesus does pass judgment on the Jewish leaders here. And he does it with the parable that follows. So what I'd like to remind us of as it relates to evangelism this upcoming season is that the coming judgment is a powerful motive to get the word out about Jesus. It's a biblical motive 
Think about the way that Paul argued for the pride of place in judgment when it comes to preaching the gospel to unbelievers on your list of five. Second Corinthians 5. For we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is due for us in the body, whether for good or for evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For, his sake, God, for, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming, and the people on your list of five aren't ready for it. They're not ready. As 1 Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We have our own judgment seat to stand in front of. How much less prepared are the people on your list of five? So my closing word here is to urge you, with everything I have, this particular Advent season, don't play it safe with your list of five over these next five weeks. Your safety might equal their peril. You know, two weeks ago, missionary martyr John Chow was pierced to death by arrows on a beach when he sought to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the precious people of North Sentinel Island off the coasts of India and Myanmar. John faced raised arrows as he gave his life for Jesus on that island. You know, we don't face raised arrows. Max Stiles taught me this. You know what we face? We face raised eyebrows. Raised eyebrows. That's it. That's as bad as it's likely to get here in this nation this week for you in your evangelistic efforts. Raised eyebrows. So may I urge you, may I implore you, and may I challenge you to exhort unbelievers in view of the coming judgment of Christ. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Well, let's review. We pray for God to open gospel doors all year long, but during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. He is working overtime to open doors wider than usual. So three principles for mixing it up with folks on your list of five this Advent season. Number one, expect unbelievers to question the authority of Christ. Number two, expose unbelievers to the matchless wisdom of Christ. Ask questions. Ask questions. Quote scripture. Third, exhort unbelievers in view of the coming judgment of Christ. Now, one final application before we sing the doxology together, and it's, it's simply this. If you don't have a list of five, please pick one up. Don't be without one. Don't leave this place without finding one. They're on the, uh, the information table as you leave Fellowship Hall. Fill it out. Put in five names that as far as you know, these folks are far from Jesus. Stick it in the fly, fly leaf of your Bible. And if this is your home church, I hope you have a list of five. So my challenge to you is, to, is this. Will you make this Advent a deliberate season of turning to prayer for those on your list of five? Pray for them every single day this Advent. No days off allowed. Can you declare with the Apostle Paul in Romans 10.1 that brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved? So pray for them. Pray, first of all, that the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin. 
pray that God would draw them to Christ. Pray that God would open doors for you to share a good word for your king. Pray that God would help you to take an interest in lost people, to be politely curious about them and their story. Pray that you would have courage not to be ashamed of the gospel. Pray for clarity to explain the message of the gospel simply and clearly. Pray that you would be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ. Pray for your tone this season, gentle, respectful, wise, gracious, bold speech. And finally, just pray for opportunities to plant and water seeds in people's lives and trust God for the growth. So this Advent, I am challenging you. Get on your knees for your list of five. Move your feet toward your list of five. And like Jesus, open your mouth to your list of five. We pray for God to open gospel doors all year long, but during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. Will you take this challenge with me? Every day, 24, 24, 25 days starting today, pray, pray, pray for your list of five. The gospel's only good news if it gets there in time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us in a couple of areas. Number one, that you would help us to be people who are full to overflowing with the gospel. That we would seek to enjoy the gospel ourselves before we would ever seek to entrust the gospel to others. Help us to dine on the very promises that we want others to put their faith in. Grant that we would be Christians committed to the gospel, leaning on the gospel, loving and exploring and extolling the gospel with all that we have. Fill us full to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Grant us a fresh love for the Savior in this place. And Lord, secondly, I pray that we wouldn't make it any harder than it is, that we might go into this season not with every answer in the world, but with every question under the sun that we would find people fascinating because they are made by an infinitely holy God. Yes, full of suffering and sin, but that's the adventure of it all. I pray that you'd help us to move into people's lives with purpose, with curiosity, with love, and draw people out. Learn who they are. Help people to learn who they are. Help expose their hearts before them. And when we see a need, that we might go in through a wound and bring the balm of the gospel to bear. Lord, we've got tracts in Fellowship Hall. We have counseling booklets. We have friends that we can do this with. We're not alone when we do this. Grant that we would open our mouths and say a good word for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.